0: Hello. Hi, John. Hi, Merlin. How's it going? Mm, pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty good. Oh, bright and beautiful, June seventeenth, and uh, yeah, you're on your trip. <laughs> or oh, is it? Is it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, June seventeenth, like it says on the calendar right now.
1: Hmm. Mm. I would have thought that we were further along than that. Hmm.
0: <laughs> Join the club. Hmm. Oh my goodness! I'm basically I'm just mm. I'm basically a Ren song, mm. an ongoing Ren song. You mean one that is only partially recorded? Hey, he's trying. Yeah, Tra- Charles too. had a, as we record this on June third. Charles had a very good dad joke this morning.
1: I saw that. Yeah, it was. Um, oh, you saw that? Oh yeah, about the uh, doctor's thought, office.
0: Yeah, wow, that's cool. We got, I think we get the same Twitter.
1: Yeah, we 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 uh, we follow a couple of the same people. I think he's um.
0: Yeah, it's it's a it's a process. I think a lot of it's probably drums and drum sounds.
1: You know, drum sounds. It's very hard to get good drum sounds.
0: Yeah, I mean, like if you've got, um, I told you about that podcast I like, uh, Hit Parade. Uh, I've encouraged you to listen to that podcast, even though one episode is about red red wine. You can skip that one, mm-hmm. but uh, they talked about they did hear the guy uh, Chris Melanfi did a good uh, deep dive on uh, the interesting phenomenon. Do, 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 of uh, Genesis being uh, a little bit of a black swan uh, in that the uh, emergence of the solo careers uh, did not harm, well, eventually, <laughs> didn't harm Genesis Prime, but in fact uh, helped it. So he, t- he talks about, it's got a lot about your man, Phil Collins. Do
1: you feel that that is unusual or he, he feels that's unusual? He cites
0: other examples. Uh-huh. Of this, but it is unusual. I mean, so like, here's all the asterisks so that I can remember is that when you're talking about somebody like a Phil Collins and a Genesis, it's unusual for a person to have an ongoing, very successful solo career that just keeps going up, like alongside an ongoing actual uh, band uh, venture where they in fact, they both at one point, there was one point where, and, and then you bring uh, Peter, Peter Gabriel in the mix.
1: Yeah.
0: And you, you had a week where, uh, it was like uh, Genesis and Peter Gabriel one and two, and then they swap positions the next week. This is not actually that interesting, but 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 I, I like the full story of in the air tonight. and I like the debunking of the myths, and I, I like the fact that somebody in you know, Phil Collins was having a rough time, you know, in his life, and they gave him the uh, the the prototype of uh, of a drum machine pre eight oh eight, and that, that that and that's why we we're in the air tonight. Anyway, Mike and Mike and the Mechanics. Is I forgot really he was in Mike and the Mechanics. I was outside waiting for my lift because, you know, this is how I am. I can remember where I was when I heard something. I was uh, on Parnassus Avenue waiting for my lift and I heard that and I totally forgot uh, the, the, the other guy. The other it's guy.
1: Mike Rutherford. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's not. Ernie Banks.
0: Ernie Banks. Tim Banks.
1: Birthday party, cheesecake.
0: <laughs> <Leonard Bernstein. laughs>
1: I hate you. Uh, but, you know, they had a lot of songs, Mike, in the mechanics. You they, You forget. You know, that they had, um, all I need is a miracle.
0: See, I forgot. About, I remembered Silent Running featuring the great Paul Carrick. Right. Uh, um, who sang Tempted in Squeeze. Oh, isn't he wonderful? He's wonderful. That guy's got pipes. Yeah. And uh, then you got the other one, the All I Need is a Miracle. And who sang that? Was that Paul Young? I bet that was Paul Young.
1: Uh, Paul Young all was, I in, need is a was in Mike and the Mechanics? Paul well, Young?
0: Pres- Supposedly, according to the uh, the podcast episode, they had a uh, rotating lineup of, uh, of singer types.
1: Oh, Paul Young uh, was a, you know, I was a, uh, was a weird, weird fan of his.
0: I was too. Oh, yeah. I have such, I, well, it's, 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 it's only super embarrassing now. Uh, but the first time I heard Love Will Tear Us Apart by Joy Division was his cover of it. And I really liked it.
1: Oh, that's nice. Wait, that is something? it the same Paul Young, though?
0: Yep. Yep, 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 yep. Really? Yep. Uh song was sung by Paul Young on uh, the internet science site. song was sung by Paul Young on both the original recording and the nineteen ninety-six re-recording. Hmm. Now a lot of people re-record now. Uh that's what I've heard. Um, you know, uh Jeff Lynn. Jeff Lynn, he's like beard deep in re recordings. Yeah. Cheap, like, I cheap can... trick, cheap trick might have done some re recordings. I'm not sure. I can understand that. Because then you get the money. It's all you know, about the money. I did,
1: I did re-recordings.
0: Tell me more. Of of, of previously released official <coughs> material?
1: No, that's the that's the difference. That's the thing.
0: You had at least, I want to say, three Western State Hurricane songs on your first album, The Worst You Can Do Is Harm.
1: Oh, it was more than that. Okay.
0: I know Car Parts was a very different song in a Hurricanes. Oh, this is interesting, because you know, I had that long list of topics if we ever ran out of things to talk about. It's actually Absolutely. dovetails with that. If you got topics, bring topics. But okay, so I'm gonna say
1: You know I never bring topics, so
0: Well, I mean, you're the uh, you're the epicenter, as they say. Mm. You got uh, you got car parts, you got Mimi, you got um is <laughs> a Santa line? What's the one I'm thinking of? What's the one with the banana banana? What's that one?
1: Uh nope. unsalted butter is unsalted that unsalted butter. Is that is that an original for long winters? Nope, that was um, that was a uh, Western State song. Hmm. In so, fact, different,
0: so different, John. So I can't imagine you having been in a band with that lady and Michael and then uh, somebody else, I think. And uh, I can't imagine having played those songs, gigged them so many times, recorded the demo, if memory serves, with a, fan, a friend of the show, Phil Eck. I know too much about you, John. It's creepy. Mm-hmm. And then to ha- to reimagine those in a way that uh, was utterly fresh.
1: Car Parts is a very different song. Extremely different. Um, the songs on that record that were not Western State songs. Uh, give that, me a that's moment. That's the ones you
0: wrote that's the ones you wrote in Harlem on a mattress. Is that
1: no, right? No, that's the second long winter's record. Okay. Give me a moment. Which is the song that opens the Long Winter's catalog? If you were following the Long Winter's along in real time, it would have been the first song you heard by them. Mm -hmm. uh, Was actually a Bun Family Players song, and I don't think the Western State Hurricanes ever played it. Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. It was a it was a song that the that the Bun Family Players didn't. I had a vision, you see, and I don't think that I communicated it, and the Bun Family Players didn't really like it and so it kind of went into a hat somewhere. And as I was trying to come up with songs for a first album, I, I, I cannot get inside my head, the head of 2000, the -hmm. year 2000, Mm -hmm. um, to just to figure out like how I was choosing songs to record at the time. Cause you know, I'd written 40 songs by that point, but I, I, um, I don't know I don't know how I was combing through them because I remember feeling like I didn't have enough songs for the first long winters record. Huh. The only n- new songs on that album are Government Loans. Okay. Which when people ask me and it happens all the time, I don't know if if there's a comparable thing in your world where people say like what was your what was your favorite website that you ever built mm-hmm. i'm not sure what the comparable thing would be to people asking what's your favorite song they, anybody
0: anybody who's made made enough stuff that you know some of their stuff that's in, to me that's an interesting uh question to ask especially because it's very difficult to answer in a lot of ways
1: and i refuse to answer it and i and i and I, it's very hard for me to even imagine answering it because i ca- i can't i can't I couldn't think of my songs that way, right? Like if, even if you asked me, what's your favorite song on this one album? I'd well, you've like, blown uh, the topic
0: uh, uh, I had, but I think we hmm. could still salvage it if you wanted a topic. I was going to ask oh. you at some point to reflect on some of your career with Long Winter songs. And now, I mean, I think we're kind of there. I think we've arrived and, and I'm super interested in this. Hmm. Cause I mean, every, every time one writes a song, I mean, even a piker like me, when, when having written a song, it has, it has a life. I interrupted you, and I apologize. This will be brief. The um, It has a life in that something welled up enough that it needed to come out somewhere or chose to come out somewhere, right? Like, you know, sand, sand and a pearl kind of thing. Like, mm. really, most things, even if you're, like, scrounging, like you you famously writing lyrics, like, while the band's recording the other tracks... You um you dredge up something to have something to say, so it had a life you didn't may not even have really known about before it became a song, and then it had a life as a thing you like had to record tracks for over and over, and Ken Stringfellow's punching you in and out, and all those things. It has a life as a recording, and then it has several lives after that because it has lives. Like you, as your band uh, uh, lineup would change, and you would choose to perform the songs differently. You had all different ways. I've seen you play some of your songs live. So then maybe you do a throwback and do it the original way. And maybe Sean's there and maybe, you know, maybe it's Nabil, maybe it's Michael, but you know what I mean? Like in all those cases, and then you get this weird in oregano or latent time where they're not top of mind. And then maybe you think of one of those things. I don't know. And you've got that times 40 plus, right? It's interesting. The the, the lives of a song are are very interesting to me.
1: Well, there's a difference, I guess, between a song and a recording. Mm -hmm. Like song versus record. (laughs) In uh, yeah. the Grammys? It says here, uh, I just, I've never, I haven't done this in a, in a decade, but apparently according to all music... Don't look, don't look, don't look! It's I'm still mad about the two and a half stars. I'm still album.
0: mad about this. I'm still so fucking mad about this.
1: The review says... No, don't read it, John." The striking thing about John Roderick is his vocal similarity to R.E.M.'s Michael Stipe, which is pretty uncanny. Mm. And then, they're not only a slightly mellower R.E.M., but Soul Asylum, Counting Crows. (laughs) Um, Um, That's a um, sort of... Yeah. um, Well, which is interesting because at one point, for a long time, the the review, the first review that went up on AllMusic was this girl who said it was a hookless something something, something. And it became the, because all music is the, uh, is a portal. Mm -hmm. It was the, it was the first thing that came up. If you Googled the long winters hookless, something of indie rock.
0: And and now somebody, and it's it's one reason I avoid review sites for a movie I want to see is that now I, whether I want to have it or not, a baseline has been established, even if it's a baseline that I would later hugely disagree with. Right. So, so people Google your band and the first thing they see is that you're, you're tuneless and this site that at the time was relatively canonical for being where you find out how good a record is, you know,
1: kind of hating on it. It appears that they don't even have a, have the cover art for it. Um, so you know that was always fun, but the but the um, the difference between a song and a recording has I don't know it's plagued me my whole career because uh, because a you know recording is a snapshot of of a of a minute and I never had a very strong uh, aesthetic I was never goth or punk or, or even indie really. Mm -hmm. And so, so for me, if I had a song, I didn't go into the studio with a vision of how, how the recording was going to sound. I had the song and was very open to Hearing from the people that were standing around, because especially early days, I didn't understand how a bass line would work or how a drum part would work. People would sit around me and talk about drum parts and how this guy's drum parts were great and that, you know, and made the song and these drums and especially drum sounds. I had no idea what they were talking about drum sounds. Yeah. It seems why, like something what,
0: that Chris Walla in particular really cares about, and you can so hear the production on "Give Me a Moment" in particular is seems very Chris Walla to me.
1: Well, uh, Chris Walla—it's it's got really, an atmosphere to it. Chris Walla really cared about it, but that—but I don't look back and think like, "Oh, that was amazing." I mean, I don't—I don't feel like the sounds, the sounds we got were very indie, but not—but they're not sounds that I chose um because I didn't know enough to choose. I couldn't have if you'd put if you'd put two drum sounds right next to each other, I, I and I remember it used to happen all the time. I would just <laughs> right. sit there dumbfounded. Looks like nothing to me. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. And and it it wasn't just uh it wasn't just the sounds but like I couldn't I it was hard for me to have an opinion about a bass part for instance because Bass parts can do a lot of different things, and I didn't understand what any of those were. Like, I knew listening to the Beatles that Paul McCartney's bass line was doing something, Uh and I appreciated it. But also, Geezer Butler's bass line is doing something in Black Sabbath tunes, which is playing the same part as Tony Iommi, Uh and it's also amazing. So, you know, which do you... So if you're recording one of my songs, if you're recording Samaritan, which do you do? Do you, do you find a really great bass player and turn him loose on it? Or do you have somebody just play the root notes, right? Because I never had a, I never had a solid band that just developed a sound. It, was ne- it wasn't me and three friends, and we started at 15 years old, and our sound was the sound of the band, and you couldn't separate it from my songwriting.
0: And most of the, I mean, like in so many bands, the primary person writing the songs, not always by a long shot, but in most bands, especially younger bands, it's mostly a guitar player slash singer who writes the songs, who is thinking about the chords and the changes in the bridge and that kind of stuff. And it is, you know, it, it's, I, I don't mean this to sound like a slam on bass players, uh, like in the way it is, but like, it's its unusual to find somebody who is competent when they're young and new at getting really getting inside the song and becoming like a critical part of the emotional valence of the song Who who's not also like a little bit of a showboat like you don't you know what i mean you meet those people who are like savants <laughs> that like take over the the whole song but not everybody's uh, i know you're not a huge fan but not everybody is mike Watton and d boone Where like you say, they've been playing together forever and have lived inside each other's brains for so long. You know what part to play. And and also this is in the time before isolated tracks and before, you know, bass tabs were widely available where like people like I played I played when I played bass, I played like Lou Barlow. I mean, I played like a guitar player who was like, Oh, I see these strings are pretty much the same, just bigger. And then you you would do like a you know, like a like a Black Sabbath type thing or a Ramones type thing.
1: Well, the there was a kid in my high school who was who really decided sometime around the age of 15 or 16 that he was identifying as a bass player. <laughs> he came out as a bass player. And it was you know, it was um extremely unusual because there were 20 kids that were lead guitar players and there were a bunch of kids in choir that sort of toyed around with the idea of being singers, although a lot of them were sort of like piano singers. There wasn't really anybody who, I mean, con- considering how many metal guitar players there were, there was a surprising lack of metal singers. And then there was just this one guy that, that talked about bass lines. And I'd never even heard the term, of course. And he and he was evangelizing about it, like, you got to listen to the bass line. <clears throat> because the assumption, I think, that we all had was that the bass player was the guy in the band who wasn't good enough to be the lead guitarist and got handed the bass. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, <clears throat> so the songs on the first Long Winners record and the second Long Winners record, really every song I've ever recorded... Uh, most of those decisions were being made by not me. And it's a, it's a character I think of that, that kind of haunts me, um, follows me every every, uh, throughout my life, which is a, a, a feeling about a lot of stuff that I just want somebody else to do it and take ownership of it. and, Either send me the receipts or tell me about it later. Mm-hmm. And it's um it haunts me because you would think I was pretty controlling about stuff. But I actually just want to be I want to be on the receiving end of good fortune. <coughs> this episode of Roderick on the line is brought to you by Squarespace.
0: You can learn more about Squarespace right now by visiting Squarespace.com slash super train. Oh, my friends, there's so much that you can do with Squarespace. You can create a beautiful website to turn your cool idea into a new site right on the internet. You can showcase your work. You can have a blog or publish other kinds of internet content. You can sell products and services of all kinds. You can promote your physical or online business. You can announce an upcoming event or a special project and so much more. Squarespace does this by giving you beautiful templates created by world-class designers they offer powerful e-commerce functionality to lets you sell anything online, the ability to customize, a little look and feel, settings, products, anything on your site, just a few clicks. Everything is optimized for mobile right out of the box. They offer a new way to buy domains. You can choose from over 200 domain name extensions. That's so many extensions. They have analytics to help you grow in real time and built-in search engine optimization. This is free and secure hosting with nothing to patch or upgrade ever and they offer 24 by 7 award-winning customer support. Uh, You know, Squarespace is encouraging folks to go out and make it. You make it yourself. You can easily create this beautiful website all by yourself. I think you know by now that uh, you're using Squarespace right now by listening to the Roderick on the Line podcast, because guess what? Turns out it is hosted on Squarespace, as it has been uh, since our very first episode. So listen, please, right now, you go head out to squarespace.com slash supertrain for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, use the very special offer code supertrain, to save ten percent off your first purchase of a website or domain. Our thanks to Squarespace for supporting Roderick on the line and all the great shows. <coughs> I don't think and you're I'm, that way about implementation. I think if there is any way you're like that, it's about idea generation and desired outcome. But like, you know, there there are people out there who are really all about the implementation. You know what I mean? Like somebody, like I, I got to say, like I'm I'm really glad you and you and Eric got connected because I think he he really found something special that in the arrangements and the choices that really brought out the melodies of your songs while still really holding
1: it down. I was really lucky uh, to to meet up with Eric and to <clears throat> to sort of see. You know when Eric auditioned for the band everybody else in the band was like not that guy he was like 12 right <laughs> yeah and i and i don't know i just I, I connected with him right away but that was that was luck as much as anything he was the only person that auditioned for the job and so it i mean and i was uh, it, for instance like if somebody if i if i want a if i want a brick path laid in my yard and a and a person comes and says, I will do it. I say, great. Well, I'd like it to be a herringbone pattern. And they go, fine. Great. And then I really, really go inside and pull the blinds. I don't stand there on the porch and watch them. I don't say, oh, hey, um, you know, uh, I want it like this, not like that. You know, I don't. I don't. What I do is I come out later and look. And if they got it right... I go, yeah, right. That's what I meant. And and it's and that's somewhat obvious. So right on, you know, high five. If they get it wrong, which happens a lot, I'm super devastated, confused. I don't understand how somebody could have made those choices that seem so unobvious. And you get this a lot. In the, in the world where you can get three people together and say, what's the way to do this? And all three of them do, say exactly the same thing. And then you hire a fourth guy to do it and he does it completely backwards. And all three of the other people will be like, it was obvious how to do. Uh-huh. Um, but it's not always, and people make really weird choices, right? Uh-huh. So so I, I always handed stuff like that off like the uh, f- making the first long winners record i just handed it off because there were people in the room that wanted it chris walla and sean nelson wanted to be in charge of that and i was grateful i was grateful to them like yes i don't know what a baseline is i don't know what a drum sound is like i'm gonna play my song and you guys take it huh. <laughs> and they made choices that were personal to them that would follow me the rest of my career because because the long winters didn't turn into a band it was a it was i mean the long winters turned into a band obviously but like eric corson being the one thing that was consistent or constant mm-hmm. and he doesn't even play on the first record mm-hmm.
0: was it mostly remind me was it mostly chris walla playing bass
1: no chris never played any bass on it, it was it was joe bass all oh, right um, Is it the po- Posies guy? No, he he played in the Posies, yeah, yeah. and and in Sky Cries Marion and a hundred other bands. Joe Skyward, Joe has a lot of names, or had. Joe died a couple of years right. ago. Um, but you know, Joe was widely regarded as one of the most creative and interesting bass players in Seattle, and I think his bass parts on that record are phenomenal. I'm super lucky that he agreed to play on the record, and you know, he was always kind of a hero of mine, even though he's a or was a freaky nut um and brian from fountains of Wayne played drums i mean it was a nice it was a nice group (coughs) it's just you know choices were made in the recordings Uh about and choices about tempo choices about whether we were going for i mean as, as basic a uh, a choice as like, is this going to be rock or is this going to be pop or is this going to be? That's the
0: version that goes on to fast? the. That's the version that goes onto the recording that lots of people hear and imprint on <clears throat> and love. And if you choose to cover, or if you cover, if you choose to play that song live, and the bass part doesn't go like this in the time you play it, it's not going to sound like the song people love.
1: Well, and uh, and I I I really discovered that. Toward the end of the long winter's recording career when I covered my own song Ultimatum, uh-huh. which I had done a lush electro sad pop version of on the Ultimatum EP, and then completely re-jiggered as a hard rocker on our last album and got angry letters. How dare <laughs> you? You know. <laughs> And I was like, "Wow, I just my song, you know. You can do them a lot of different ways." And people were upset because they really liked the first version. I agree with them. First version, I'm proud of, very proud of. Um, but the reason this is all in my mind is I've told you, I think, about the lost Western State record.
0: Uh, tell me again. <clears throat> what I what I know is you had this band that became. Um, where you guys worked real hard and gigged a lot and it became kind of a phenomenon and sort of a band's band in Seattle. And there were some flirtations with, with a, a popular or well-regarded local label. You had a demo that I've heard, but uh, tell me about that record. Well, was that, well, first of all, did, did I mostly get, was that mostly correct?
1: Yeah, well, that's true. I mean, <clears throat> the Bunn family players were falling apart. This was my band in the, in the nineties that I, that I put together with my best friend from high school. And he and I had very different musical tastes. We came up together listening to 70s AOR. And I think the arrival in the mid-late 80s of the Red Hot Chili Peppers and um, Jane's Addiction really changed the... Direction of alternative rock because we up in Anchorage. I mean, I was, I went to punk rock shows. I was exposed to a lot of punk rock, but I didn't. And I, and I liked the rock aspect of it, but I didn't click with the subculture and it was pre hardcore. So there wasn't that the sort of righteousness to the politics that came with hardcore. The politics were either nihilist, or, um, or were like hyper sort of revolutionary, but, but like, you know, in, a, in a, almost a young one's way where it was just like uh, dumb. You know, like I felt like the politics of punk rock were dumb in the mid 80s. It was um, it, and, and I'm talking about it as as filtered through Anchorage, Alaska. And so I didn't, I wasn't there for hardcore. When it came in I, and, and the politics got, got sharp, I was already kind of meh about it. And then <clears throat> Jane's Addiction and the Chili Peppers introduced <clears throat> that funk to, to big rock, to um, stadium rock like, you know, they put that that uh, that weird um, Frusciante guitar on it. And I I thought that was cheese ball. I loved Jane's Addiction. But the chicka chicka bang, chicka bang aspect of it was not the thing that made it great. It was a, it was an element of it that was, that was interesting. It was kind of like the reggae sound of the early eighties that like the police are great. The reggae aspect of it is crucial to the sound of the police, but Mm -hmm. it's not the, it's not the cool part, right? You don't go like, I can't wait for the, the two reggae songs on the first pretenders album. It's like, yeah, they're there. People were trying to process that into music but that's not what's great about it and that was true for jane's for me but my my high school best friend kevin really dug that you know that was a kind of that was the head bob and you see the you see the reverberations of the chili peppers and the that in there's a whole strain of of alternative rock that went mm-hmm. that direction you
0: know? i mean there's I, i'm thinking like all the way down the line again to mention the Minutemen would be one but like w- people who were um doing a, pre- a sort of unironic uh a- a- unironic edition of funk and in some cases a uh, little bit of hip-hop like yeah, bef- right. before it got silly and new metal but th- there was this there was this uh strain of you know i think jane's addiction is an interesting one to mention because they were so they seemed so odd That album seems so weird.
1: It was crazy when
0: it first came. I mean, and I I think a lot of it comes down to the most obvious thing, which was his singing. Yeah. His singing was so odd. But yeah, no, I I, I agree with you. I mean, like part of what you're, you're talking about the politics of punk rock and, and it's, and it's, uh, and it's nieces and nephews. But a a lot of that was like a, a pretty unironic post clash earnestness. Yeah. That led to a lot of things where like, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, there was there was not room for that much fun. I mean, I, I guess you could um, maybe think of Fishbone. Like Fishbone seemed like Fishbone. such a breath of fresh air to me. You know what I mean? Right. When I first heard, I want to say par- probably Party at Ground Zero. Yeah, um, and I was like, well, what is this with the horns? I never saw them live, but everyone I know who saw them live was like, they walked away going like, that's the most amazing live band I've ever seen.
1: Yeah, well, and Living Color was doing a version of that. Yes, <clears throat> but you know, but they're they're drawing from ska. Mm-hmm. I'm reading this incredible book right now, which is just this British writer who wrote a biography of Mudhoney. And, you know, what What have I not heard about the grunge scene, right? I just feel like I know <laughs> as much about it as you could know. But here's this book just about the formation. I'm only the first third of the way through it, about the formation of Mudhoney. And I know all the characters. I know some of them personally. I know the environment, you know, this, the, this book is talking about streets in this town that i that I know and was walking down not long after the events depicted. And, <clears throat> and yet this book is really illuminating and it's illuminating of a kind of uh, what I think of as a pretty specific Northwest reaction to punk, which was, and this was true in Anchorage too. There was an absurdist take on it um, the take where where the earnestness of that post clash punk was was given the send-up treatment by people who were who were also punk but too punk to be punk or whatever or not punk enough to be too punk to be punk there people were were taking the piss at the same time that other people were dead earnest about it And that was my instinct, right? And if you if you read about this, you know, like this little group of dudes, Mark Arm, Steve Turner, and their weird connection to Jeff Ament and Stone Gossard, at a point when they're all in high school or right out of high school, and they're just going to shows with each other. And Jeff Ament has come from Montana, and he is self admittedly kind of like a humorless dude from Montana who just wants to play hard rock and is sort of punk adjacent and stone Gossard. I mean, they're all, they're all rich kids, right? I mean, both Steve Turner and, and Mark Armour from Bellevue, they're, they're middle-class suburban kids. They're going to these punk shows and they're developing this thing of like, we're going to make a band that's so bad that it's, you know, that it makes all that it pisses off all the punk rock kids. And and that was like, that was where I was coming from too. Like, Oh, uh, is, are we, are we trying to sound terrible? Like I can, I can be even more terrible sounding than that. Um, and, and that was the hard, fast rules days, right? Where bands were just playing Mm -hmm. as fast as bands could play. I didn't, I didn't emotionally respond to that music at all. That just felt like sports. That just felt like, like dudes, just with their with all the blood vessels in their neck p- p- bulging out. Well it's, like, it's like
0: watching a, watching a kid do cup stacking where <laughs> where you're like well that's that's really accomplished but the main metric uh, as i understand it is just how much more quickly you can stack and unstack the cups.
1: Yeah, yeah, right. I, I think I mean, it,
0: like I think I got the gist. If this it, gets three times faster, I'm not sure I'll like it three times more.
1: <laughs> right? It didn't. You know, I'm always looking, and that was why the that was why the Sex Pistols record was just it just hit me like a fucking wall, mm-hmm. in a way that nothing by the Clash ever did. Right? Like the and 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 I would make that stand on city streets in the 80s and just get and and I there's still a, I think 80 percent of the people would roll their eyes at me. But the Sex Pistols record is better than anything the Glash ever did. In my humble opinion. Mm-hmm. Because it's fucking great. And there's no, you know, the politics in the Sex Pistols record are just, fuck you, what have you got? Fuck you, fuck that. I mean, the, which, the,
0: the two sentiments that I could think of that come straight to mind is um, anti-monarchy and um, anti-abortion. <laughs> That's, they, have an, they have an anti-abortion song.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well,
0: they kind, answered, kind of. you know. I mean, it's like, it's not what you think it is. I mean, yeah. I mean, they, they had a, a fuck you for everybody and uh, certainly sure. a lot of it was a bit, but it was a good bit and their sound was, um, was unique.
1: Yeah. Pretty, uh, pretty, pretty good rock, you know? Mm-hmm. But so when, when, when I formed a band in Seattle trying to fit, myself in somewhere in the mid 90s to uh to a world that was already very well developed right i was not going to come in in i was not going to come in with a band in 1994 and be good at grunge certainly i wasn't punk or punk adjacent i wasn't going to be good at punk i didn't understand the codes and i and i didn't believe in them and i wasn't going to be good at glam rock or rock really i mean uh, any kind of rock with swagger i couldn't do it with a straight face you know if you, to get up there i uh, briefly i was in a not band. even a straight
0: face if you're gonna do it right you gotta make guitar
1: face well Brrr. but I, I was in a band where i was just the lead singer
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, very briefly <laughs> and they were and it was a black les pauls band The other dudes in the band all had really long (laughs) hair. (laughs) I know exactly what you mean. (laughs) And it was just, you know, like low slung black Les Pauls. And the music was all like, and they were like, they knew that I could sing. And this was when I was still on drugs. So I met these dudes like like freebasing crank or whatever at some party late one night. And we talked for 48 hours about the band we were going to start. And all of a sudden I was in this band. And it was just—it was completely like a drug-based band genesis. But getting in front of that music, and what they wanted me to do was like, Ha-ha! or mm-hmm. or the or the grunge version of that, which is like, Ha-ha! or yeah, I'm gonna do what you do man. and I did it for for in, in practice. We never played a show, but for six months, you know, we would get together, and it would be an excuse to get high and and get messed up and and but they had all the gear. One of the, you know, they shared a practice space with a guy that ended up in Built to Spill like and they oh, this group of people ended up being in a successful band that was everybody kind of like dried out a little bit from from the hardest, harder drugs and got just to be like beer soaked and they had a band called Goody Blick and the Country Kind that was like a fucking country band. But at this point in time, they were really trying to hit the zeitgeist 93. Mm -hmm. And I was up front, you know, with this mic on a mic stand, which I'd never done before, looking for something to do with my hands. And you didn't have
0: any guitar at all?
1: No, because I didn't get like a Davy Jones uh, percussion setup. Because at the time, I didn't have, I didn't own a guitar. I was, I didn't have a fucking house, you know, so I didn't own anything. And, Nobody was going to loan me a guitar. And also I was not trusted with a guitar (laughs) because I looked like I looked like somebody that didn't know how to play guitar. And when I when I said I did, you know, that I would pick up an acoustic and I'd strum along and they would just go, yeah, uh huh, great, because I actually was terrible at the guitar. Like their practice base got broken into one time and all their shit was stolen. This was like six months after I left the band or the band broke up or whatever and they seriously thought it was might be i was like very high up on the list of suspects and when i found out later that these guys believed that i would break into a practice space and steal 10 guitars and amps or whatever i was uh, I not that would just, take
0: a lot of organization for you at the time for sure, like I mean, where would I've a like You would need a, a regular, like Ocean's Eleven,
1: to pull something like that off. How would somebody have loaned me a, a, a car? When How they would wouldn't you get the me stolen guitar?
0: things? How would you get the black Les Pauls anywhere? Just but, running down the street with them, with
1: the strap locks, <laughs> you yeah, got like, them around your neck, <laughs> just <laughs> waiting for the bus. <laughs> but the but the whole idea that they knew me so little that they would suspect even in my darkest darkest day that I would steal something, you know, that I would break into a place that was owned by a friend or anybody and steal a thing in order to keep my drug habit alive or whatever. I would rather fucking die Mm -hmm. than burgle. And I'm saying this as someone who's who's convicted of burglary in Boulder County, Colorado (laughs) on a trumped up charge because (laughs) I had a fucking for a different day. I had an electric razor in my pocket. Uh, that you know I found in the in a bathroom somewhere um, but like it 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 pointed to how little they knew me or how much they were projecting their own values onto somebody else right like if you be, If you could believe that about myself, it is because you, sir, are a burglar in your own heart mm. but 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 finding that i couldn 't play grunge with a straight face. I couldn't play punk rock with a straight face. Anytime somebody would be like, let's play that song twice as fast, I would start making a funny face because I because I felt like it was. Uh, now I was parodying punk or I was par- parodying grunge. None of that stuff was natural. And the only well, thing. And that- a
0: good. I mean, like, I, I, this sounds real stupid, but like, yeah, I hear everything you're saying, but it's also that, like, Sometimes when one feels that the songwriting is not there in a song whether it's yours right. or someone else's you feel like speeding it up 20% will make it better. And sometimes <laughs> right. sometimes it does. Sometimes it does. But like it's not it's not actually going to make the song better it
1: might make the record better. Well and, and I think that often happens because the people in the band are coming out of a subculture that they already belong to and feel like, like they identify with. And mm-hmm. that was the thing I didn't have in high school or college. I did not, I was extremely polyamorous in terms of, and, and, and still am. I can go to a show of any kind with anybody, I'm friends with people of every stripe. And if I'm if I'm at a punk rock show, I am there as an appreciator, but never a member. And if I'm if I was at a grunge show or a hip hop show or classical music or whatever, I can go. I appreciate it. I'm there with you. I'm consuming your media, but I'm not there either as a member or repping a different thing. And it's not a chameleon. I'm not trying to pretend I'm anything. I just am not, so when I heard punk rock, it was like, yeah, I mean, like I say, I took my sister to all those shows and I sat in the back of the room and I listened to all those bands and I slam danced and I saw all and I, and the fucking Agent Orange and <clears throat> whatever else you got, right? Um, but I, I saw DO2 and whatever and it was, the point was that when it came time to record my music that I was writing on the acoustic guitar. I had no idea at all what I wanted it to sound like. And I felt like, I don't know. Is it, should it sound like, uh, I mean, all all I could think of was should it, it's kind of just guy with an acoustic guitar, right? I mean, I, I, I wanted strings on it sometimes did you find yourself um as
0: a corollary did you find yourself actively
1: living in a shotgun shack
0: yeah i mean somebody like me uh the stuff that i would write i kind of wanted it to sound like a band usually rem or Whose do but um did you find yourself uh it sounds like not but did you find yourself deliberately not wanting it to sound like this or that
1: no no no, no, it didn't occur to you no, and the thing was, I you never, did, you never I went wondered, like, oh,
0: this this E minor is a little bit Neil Young. I should do something else.
1: Mm-mm. No, I, because I didn't. Because I never learned to play a song by another songwriter. I never covered a song for the first twelve years of playing the guitar. I learned to play the guitar by somebody writing out the chords on a piece of paper, and. Looking at the piece of paper and making the chord and strumming, and then as soon as I could p- put three of them together, I started singing. Like as when I had C D G, I immediately was just like la 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 la, like never. It never even occurred to me. I think somebody bought me a Beatles chord book, Easy Beatles, and, and but the thing was, even Easy Beatles, the chords were so hard. Mm-hmm. And to make it know, sound it like,
0: like like for me like I could do a G A C, but for some reason stuff like D seven would be like ugh, it, it no, hurts it so, hurts my hurts my uh,
1: my pointer finger. So confusing and and you know in a lot of those Beatles songs it's like okay I got the verse G D C, and then it's like okay well now we're going to the chorus and it starts with a B minor seven. Well, it's
0: got like a T augmented thirty five, and you're like I said, yeah. a chord. I don't well, think that's a thing.
1: Paul McCartney shit, and that's the music I wanted to learn how to play.
0: And if you played it wrong with those songs, you could tell, like, oh, that was that was a little bit... You rounded that off bad. a little too much.
1: And looking at the Mudhoney-Steve Turner story, like, their guitars were always amplified. The first instrument they ever picked up was a guitar that was plugged into an amp that had a distortion box on it. So you just learn to play a different... You're, you're making music right away. You can make music on one string with an electric distorted guitar with a, with a, like a $20 acoustic guitar that your mom's boyfriend bought at a swap meet, um, which is hard to play anyway. That's not, I didn't start there, but, but what I wanted was a, was a band, you know, like I wanted the friends. I wanted the, I wanted the feeling of the, I wanted the feeling of hard days night. Mm hmm. And so my high school for for people
0: for people like me, I like I wanted that to be my football. Yeah, right. I mean, no, not not literally, but in the sense of like, I I never found myself very envious about most group activities, but I did, um, I did admire and crave the um, the the bonhomie. I guess of like having a group of people who were all working on the same thing, which, which bumped straight up against my own problems with authority and getting along with people. Cause I was a dick, but like there was a part of me that really wanted, I wanted to be in a band cause it was, it was cool. And I I wanted friends. (laughs) It'd be nice if you had cool friends and you're like, Oh yeah, you can, you can, um you can really, you can play misty mountain hop. Like that's cool.
1: Well I think I thought also that a band was a thing that that people would coalesce around, so I didn't have to be in a band that was part of a scene if you made if you had a band it would it would a, a scene would form around you. This is a thing that I didn't think about directly, but I wasn't trying to impress anybody uh anybody that I admired. I was trying to impress people. Who were looking for a thing that nobody else was making?
0: You also talked about this in that interview in my backyard that became the backdoor pilot for this show, um, where we talked about like people who uh, learn guitar to quote unquote get girls, mm-hmm. you know, and talking about like those are usually douchebags. And the truth is, like you don't really quote unquote get girls when you play guitar. And you talked about oh. the tennis racket thing. Like you want you want that feeling. You want whatever whatever. <laughs> whatever, I don't know, Pete Townsend, like whatever, um, whatever your hero is feeling, you want to feel that by making something with your own hands. That's right. That's such a huge part of it is that, you know, the visceral feeling of listening to dirty deeds and like, what would it be like if I made something where I, you you have to imagine like the uncut product of having written something like Dirty Deeds, like with whatever the four chords. Like, but you you want that. You put, put it in my veins, man. Like, I want yeah. that Angus Young feeling.
1: Well, and I... Like, I don't think that Billy Gibbons is probably the greatest hang or, like, an amazing dude. Like, you don't read about Billy Gibbons doing things. You know, there's no story of, like, remember when Billy Gibbons jumped his motorcycle over the Snake River? Like... Billy Gibbons <laughs> just plays guitar in ZZ Top. But the thing that he conjured appealed to me so much. And I, I had no desire to be like a guy, um, like a grease monkey in Texas.
0: Well, like, yes, the problem is, though, people remembered them for their weird videos and their beards and like the whole bit of uh, Eliminator and their mm-hmm. whole like branding around Eliminator, but without even having to invoke like their older, like bluesier stuff, like it was just really fucking good music. And like, how many people realize how hard they were rocking out to synth driven Texas boogie rock?
1: I mean, so like, I I I will that was, fight for that record. Those were driven by
0: synthesizers and you wouldn't know it. What you remember is Billy Gibbons is a fucking baller who plays the guitar with a peso. Like, that's so badass. And like, yes,
1: I mean, like what they made was, was so them. And that was, I mean, and it was the early stuff. I don't know how I got turned on to it, but, but Eliminator too. Like I, I sat and played the tennis racket to that stuff and I was not thinking I want to start a Texas blues rock band. I was not thinking I want to, this is, I need to inhabit this universe. It just felt good to play the tennis racket too. Um, so my my friend Kevin was more literal about it, right? He liked ZZ Top and Jane's Addiction, but he kind of wanted to be he wanted to put those sounds together and make a and make an amalgam of them. So so he had it was
0: almost like he had more of like a recipe card for what he was wanting to do.
1: Well, cuz he wasn't writing lyrics and he wasn't sitting and like trying to put verse chorus verse together. He was playing guitar. Mm-hmm. A, a very common um, you know, like leisure time activity for American teenage boys at the time. And Kevin was a good guitar player. And I was so grateful to have him interested in in my songs, both because he, Kevin was older than I was. He was always cooler than I was. And at this transition moment, this inflection point right at the end of high school, there was Kevin who had always been cooler than me was like I was starting to develop a kind of cool that was not like the not like the other kinds of cool, right there was a there was an independence to me that other kids had always found kind of threatening and distasteful. Um, the fact that I didn't that I didn't obey the kid rules but but by the time you we were eighteen, that thing. I mean, the kids that found it threatening and distasteful moved on. They went somewhere else. They went to the University of Arizona or they did whatever they were going to do. But you started to see or I started to see, oh, there are other kids from other places that are also doing things that are threatening and distasteful. And also I can kind of, you know, I'm a chimera. I can move between things. So I started to to have a cool. But Kevin, I still really admired. Really, um, he just had... Confidence and capabilities, I didn't. And so we started playing music together. And it was, in a way, maybe the, maybe the, the, and I, and I I don't mean this as a bad thing at all directed toward Kevin, but it was a, it was, I can't decide whether it was the best thing or the worst thing that ever happened to me because I hitched my wagon to the, to, not to his star, but to the idea of him as a collaborator. Mm -hmm. We were going to write songs together. And his songs were riffs, you know, they were riff based. And as I got older and started to get into styles of music that were other things, I mean, i living in Seattle and hearing and honestly built to spill. And we've talked about it before, but built to spill affected so many of us mm-hmm. with their just sort of weird, s- just sounds. Um, the, but like the, like like they were doing it was kind of uh,
0: when you say riff based that's that sounds like short shrift but like such um such wily shimmery like little snake like low key riffs that weren't yeah. always just super distorted and when they were distorted it was more fuzz
1: right it was fuzz and it was and it was there for emotion you know it yeah it was but very I mean, emotional like, music think about like. Psychedelic
0: music. Think think about something like the way like in the morning starts out, which is my favorite. It's from my favorite Built to Spill record. Um, in the morning, and you're like, where the fuck did that come from? Like. <laughs> we're like t- 20 seconds into this song and i'm already in like this different universe this like and then when and you know then i get the feeling that i guess i guess got to stop and like it gets the fuzzy ending and it's like i don't know it's like a little journey it's like i don't I mean, this is all i'm sorry this is very impressionistic but like i know i feel like i know exactly what you mean. my first as you know my first hit of them was three years ago today which which was the same a similar idea like you think about how weird it sounded that they were playing these songs uh so like unironically on undistorted electric guitars. It really yeah. it really was its own sound and it wasn't like trying to be um jokey and twee. It was just it was all in the service of like this feeling that he could build with his with his songwriting and performances. The riffs and
1: stuff it I mean it it sounds like a, a basketball and five tennis balls going down a a, a dirty clothes chute. <laughs> <laughs> you should work for all music. <laughs> you know, there's not a, <laughs> a there's not a um, like calling it a riff is really doing it a disservice. Um, they're new. Nood- they're noodly in the best way, but in an incredible way. And yeah. and when when that came on the scene, I mean, Kevin listened to it politely. But uh, he didn't – it didn't grab him. And what grabbed him at that point in time was like the music of Filter or whatever, which uh, which I loved, right? I mean, mm-hmm. Hey Man, Nice Shot is a killer, killer tune. Yep. It's amazing that there was ever a time in the world when that could have been like racing up the charts. Mm-hmm. But you contrast it with um, – with ultimate alternative waivers and you're just in a, in a separate universe. But <clears throat> so the bun family players were just this crazy, this crazy group. Kevin was playing funk metal. I was trying <laughs> to start writing uh, really intriguing songs with a lot of different parts that, that had, that had all these surprises and like anti pop moments and we went through a succession of bass players and drummers that were sometimes really uh, cool dudes who were bad at their instruments, sometimes cool dudes who were great at their instruments. But, the, but it was it ended up being a vehicle for my songwriting as interpreted by my best friend who wanted to play really hard rock funk metal over the top of it. Or or adjacent to it. You know, because I would write songs with his riffs sometimes.
0: But he's but he's in some ways what you're describing, and this is not I don't mean this in a bad way, but like um what you're describing is that he is um whether or not he realizes it, whether it's by design or not, he is operating inside of genre rock. Yeah. He, or like he, as soon he, as soon as you like, like if I do a song that goes you're gonna know it's a ska song. And like the thing is, once you do that, now it's a ska song. And if you start doing like suddenly, now you're in funk rock genre land, which was so huge. The band that I essentially got thrown out of in college turned into that. They were yeah. so into. God, there were all of those bands in like, I want to say eighty, eighty eight, eighty nine, 88, 89 that were just all about like the, and it was like post Chili Peppers, not post Chili Peppers, but post Good Chili Peppers. And, but where they it was just all about that pop and bass mm-hmm. and, and those, those big tracks and then like the laconic vocals or the like overpassionate vocals. But I guess I'm saying like it's, it's difficult to, just have a little bit of something from a genre without it sounding like you're doing a genre thing. If you start playing country licks, it sounds like country rock. If you, if you're not careful about it, you you introduce pedal steel, it's going to sound like a country song. You know what I'm saying? Right. Right. And I, that's going to pull you, but did you find that pulling you or pushing you away from genre rock as you would feel those inflections happening?
1: I never, I never, I never understood. I couldn't, I couldn't embrace genre rock. I I couldn't because I couldn't it's just like every media thing I've ever I've ever tried to make. I can't imagine why you would imitate someone who had done something already because they did it already. Like why would you want to sound like a band that innovated a sound? Wouldn't you want to innovate your own sound? Mm-hmm. And it was the it's the thing about Uh, It's the thing that drives you to parody other things like what what, the way that Mark Arm and Steve Turner and Stone Gossard and Jeff Ament invented a couple of different versions of grunge was just how they how seriously they took blending punk and metal and Stone Gossard blended them with a lot of seriousness and you know and put a bunch of that funk chicka chicka in with it
0: i mean it's 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 cool to to look back and say they're re- referencing led zeppelin which somebody like i feel like um uh black hole sun sound garden very heavily referencing led zeppelin but tons of those bands are actually referencing something that in retrospect is not as historically cool which is stuff like fog hat there's a lot of like you know what i mean you know, like british, british, well, they,
1: british they, blues rock they all cite Aerosmith over and over hmm. as the one thing that they could all kind of agree on um, because they they felt like Aerosmith was good and they're not and nobody's apologizing for it. you know like a lot of the people in this book are apologizing for ever liking Ted Nugent. Mm-hmm. And of course, you don't have to apologize for liking Iggy Pop uh, because Iggy Pop ended up being in the Canon. Eventually, you know. So you don't. Yeah, but at but, I mean, the time, like he
0: was. Yeah, I mean, like alongside maybe I'm gonna say the Ramones, like just critically savaged and not particular, not even as popular as the Ramones. The Stooges the, were like a really dumb band that just happened to be way ahead of their time in some ways.
1: And Mark Arm was talking about trying to find those records and you couldn't even find them. And the only reason he wanted right. to find them was that they had that energy and whatever that fucky spirit that that connected with him in his cul-de-sac. Watching other kids skateboard or whatever, but you know, Kevin and I grew apart, and and we played this show with a band called Algae. It had a lead singer who was a girl that played the played guitar in a cool way. She and I got together and started monkeying around with songs. And I mean, I'm I'm kind of just wrapping this up because you know, um, I'm going to say something in band here. I was yeah. gonna text you,
0: but I'm gonna say this in band. Um, why don't we keep going and we'll make this a two part episode? Because this is really good and I'm interested to see where you're going.
1: Oh, okay. Is that cool? Okay, yeah, that's great. Two part at this ep- point,
0: at, at this point, we end part one. <laughs>